And coming over here, you realize nothing matters but liberty and these ideas and, and values that surround democracy and freedom. And so ultimately, we, my commander said this to me. He said, Sarah, we're not fighting for tolerance here or acceptance. We're fighting for liberation. We're fighting for life and death. And we're fighting for this idea of freedom. And that stuck with me forever. We're not fighting any sort of war of identity. We're fighting for our lives and we're fighting to make sure we're not enslaved here. It is my privilege to welcome to the podcast from Kursan, Ukraine, journalist, war correspondent, enlisted soldier in the Ukrainian army, uh, all-around hero in my book, Sarah Ashton Cirillo. Welcome, Sarah. Hey, Andrew. It's great to be on the show. And yeah, that's a lot of stuff that had to roll off your tongue regarding my uh, different professional undertakings here in Ukraine. Yeah, you and I met out in Las Vegas. Uh, you were in... Uh, a more normal role, I would say. Uh, and now you're doing something that most of us uh, only get glimpses of in terms of news coverage and social media clips. You're actually a source of a lot of the social media clips. And I'd urge people to follow uh, Sarah Ashton Cirillo's accounts um, because you get an on-the-ground look from Kursan and other parts of Ukraine. How did you find yourself in a war zone uh, over this last uh, nearly a year now? It's interesting. That's a question I get often, and it's something that morphed. It was a slow time. I was covering the U.S. political scene, specifically in Nevada, where I want to say the forward parties had a lot of success, and you personally are always warmly welcomed in the great state of Nevada. And the full-scale invasion took place in February, February 24th. And on March 4th, I arrived for two weeks to cover the refugee crisis, specifically in the border area between Poland and Ukraine. It's something I'd written about before in 2015 with the Syrian refugee crisis. And after arriving, when I came to the Ukrainian side in order to get my credentials from the armed forces of Ukraine, I was given the opportunity to go to the northern frontline city of Kharkiv uh, right after the Russians had been pushed out on March 9th, March 10th, I arrived there. And I didn't leave Kharkiv for more than seven and a half months. I started volunteering with the armed forces. I went ahead and was covering the war for LGBTQ nation for six months as a journalist. And eventually I started working in a civilian capacity for the Ukrainian government and eventually enlisted on October 10th. Now, you served as a medic uh, in the Ukrainian army until quite recently, where they moved you to something called hybrid warfare. And you've also been on Capitol Hill uh, communicating to members of Congress about the importance of American support. Uh, you must have seen some harrowing things as a medic, uh, I'm imagining. Even before serving, I saw some of the most horrific images that will never leave me as a journalist and as a volunteer. I saw enough death to last 
I never want to see another, I don't care if it's Ukrainian or even a Russian die in this war. I want every death to be the last death because what we've experienced here over the last 11 months, what I've experienced personally in, in dozens, dozens of, 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 of casualties. And we can get to that point if the Russians would just withdraw and if we can get back to the 1991 borders and see justice served, then we don't have to have any more deaths on either side. So you share a story about when you arrived in Ukraine. Uh, you were concerned about admission because you had a passport that looked nothing like you uh, because you were transgender and your passport mm -hmm. had uh, was out of date uh, and looked uh, like you did several years ago. Uh, mm -hmm. Can you can you share that story? Because I, I have to feel like that must have been also uh, something uh, of uh, an ordeal. It was a huge psychological ordeal in the sense of wondering if I would even enter the Ukrainian side. As you mentioned, I am transgender. I had all of my documentation in Nevada, my, my different markers, my name, everything changed well before I traveled. My driver's license looked like me, et cetera. However, because of the different uh, limitations with COVID, uh, with the slow processing at the passport agencies, I just never bothered to send it off. And when it's I very made the sensible decision, <laughs> over this past several yes. years, you're like, hey, we're like, what am I going to be taking trips abroad? Exactly. And ultimately, it was a snap decision that I made to come over here because I didn't believe that there would be a war. I didn't believe Vladimir Putin would be so stupid as to invade Ukraine, uh, a full-scale invasion. He had invaded previously in 2014. And so I took the opportunity, took the chance. I knew flying into the EU, specifically Germany, I wouldn't have any problems. Once I arrived at the Ukrainian border with Poland, I made the decision to go for it thanks to encouragement from some other journalists and so we boarded a train that it was myself, three other journalists, and a bunch of returning Ukrainians who were coming back to serve in the military. So on the train, what should have been an hour and 20-minute uh, trip turned into five hours. And 45 minutes of the delay was getting to the Ukrainian border in the, inside the train and security services not knowing what to do with me. I had come prepared. I brought some of the different write-ups that had taken place about me, Washington Post, Daily Beast, shown some of my book sales from Amazon, my writings, et cetera, to show, hey, this is me. I'm not trying to sneak into the country during war. And they made me, they, they made me strip down, um, not the private areas, but they made me strip down to, to check to see if I really was in the process of transitioning. And after doing so, they said, welcome to Ukraine. And wow. while a lot of people in the different communities uh, said that that was, you know, something that uh, I should have been angry about, for me, I, I was overjoyed that they let me in. I mean, they allowed me in with a different passport during the middle of a war. And that's when I realized that this country was going to win and on their way to winning because they were not being held back, just like the forward party is not being held back by traditional thinking. The Ukrainian security services were not being held back by preconceived notions of, 
of, of who and what and, and how they could move forward in winning this war with Russia. Yeah, you've commented that uh, the only things people care about in Ukraine are your character, uh, your actions, your behavior, your commitment, uh, and things around your identity uh, are not on anyone's mind. And you describe that as actually a different set of experiences than you have in the U.S. Yes, very much so. When you ran your different campaigns, you had to overcome stigma and stereotyping. And when people who are living with different gender identities in the United States, especially now, it seems to be on both sides. If you're talking the, the left and the right, it becomes a bludgeon to utilize against uh, one another. And coming over here, you realize nothing matters but liberty and these ideas and, and values that surround democracy and freedom. And so ultimately, we... <laughs> My commander said this to me. He said, Sarah, we're not fighting for tolerance here or acceptance. We're fighting for liberation. We're fighting for life and death. And we're fighting for this idea of freedom. And that stuck with me forever. We're not fighting any sort of war of identity. We're fighting for our lives. And we're fighting to make sure we're not enslaved here. Yeah, that, that's an incredible perspective that only... Uh, country under attack uh, could have. So you cross the border, uh, you show up in Kharkiv as a journalist. Um, how do you live day to day? Uh, like when you show up, was there housing? Uh, I'd imagine that taking care of journalists isn't that high on the priority list of uh, of of the the military folks. And you've been there for months. Like how, how like how do you go about what people would consider a, a routine? This is really unique, and, and this has raised some eyebrows. Um, I was brought to Kharkiv by security services, and it was a random event after I had been accredited where two people heard me speaking English, and they were, it turned out they were with uh, security services. And one of them said, all, of our, all the journalists are leaving Kharkiv. If you want to see the war, and you want to report on the war, we will bring you to Kharkiv, but we're leaving in an hour. And I was in the oblast just south of, oblast is region. I was in the region just south of Lviv called Ivano-Frankivsk. And I spoke to somebody there who I trusted somewhat, a, a medical doctor who I was there to interview. And she confirmed that they were who they said they were. And she told me, if this is true and all the journalists are leaving, you need to go because this is a chance to show the world what's happening. So I got, it's, it's ridiculous to think about. I got into a car with these strange men and drove across country uh, about a thousand kilometers, so 650 miles, to within 20 miles of the Russian border in the middle of this in, insane- Combat. Attacks yeah. on us. Yeah, insane combat. And so- for about a month and a half, I was fully embedded with these people, living with them. And I was in this weird bubble, Andrew, where the war was happening around me in a macro scale. And even in Kharkiv, uh, on, on some sort of bigger level, and I was in focused with this tunnel vision because I was only reporting on what I was being shown by them. And I was seeing amazing uh, happenings by the Ukrainian military, 
A lot of it I couldn't report. And it's the best thing that ever happened. I was getting frustrated on occasion because this wider story was out there and I was only focused on the people I was with. But it turned out that it was the best thing that ever happened to me because it prepared me to be a war correspondent. It was almost sort of like boot camp. You understand the realities of war. And so after I moved out on my own, which was in May, so I got there on March, uh, I got to the region on March 9th, got to the city on March 10th. By the first week of May, I moved out on my own. And after that, it was just normal living. I had an apartment. I was living in a very, um, it was an area called North Saltifka, which was the most attacked neighborhood of any of the unoccupied areas of, of the country. And I was living on the 13th floor and I'm watching the war around me from the 13th floor and watching the rockets literally come in several times doing live reports on my balcony. Uh, rockets hit within a couple of hundred meters. Uh, one time it hit a hundred meters away in a, a building right in front of me. And so ultimately you learn to live with it and you learn to understand the acceptance of what we sign up for as journalists on the front lines. And what that means is if we're going to show the truth to the world, we have to be willing to, to pay whatever the sacrifice is. And there's been more than 30 journalists who have died at the hands of the Russian terrorism. And so I want to give my regards to, to their memory and, and, and to their families. And, and so many more have been injured. For me, many times it came close, but they never got me. And that's one of the areas that pushed me thinking wise into joining the military because it was nearly as dangerous for me as a journalist as it would be for me to serve. This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm gonna do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right? And Helix Sleep lets you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses that's tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high quality mattress, it is a game changer, a huge difference maker. Don't take my word for it. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com yang. That's helixsleep.com slash yang. This is their best offer yet, and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. This podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that. Private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched, or tweeted. Now imagine all that data being crawled through, collected, and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. 
Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Do you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell our data? The worst part is you don't know what they're doing. You don't get to have your say. That's why I use ExpressVPN. Just hit one button and then your internet connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server. No one can see your IP address. You're completely in your own private internet. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it harder for third parties to track me and harvest my data. No matter what device you're on, you just hit one button and you get your own protected connection. So if like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com yang and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S VPN.com slash Yang. Go to expressvpn.com slash Yang to learn more. No, so you joined the military, uh, got weapons training, uh, and have been trying to save lives as a medic. Uh, and I think at some point they realized that uh, you had enormous talents uh, in terms of public awareness and communications uh, and thinking and writing. What is the American public missing? Like, are, are there things that are happening on the ground uh, that uh, would surprise folks who just tune into mainstream news coverage? Yes, and, and there's a big one. And it's a refrain that the American public oftentimes hears, but it's something that I would love for them all to see. And, and I'm trying to create a program where it's called Hello Ukraine. And I spoke to you briefly about that, where we would bring people over to, to see what's really happening. There's been no greater return on investment than what the US tax dollars are going towards in Ukraine in the last 80 years of foreign policy. And yet, what they would need to see is how much more we need. Giving us little drip by drip by drip of, of sourcing of, of weapons, humanitarian aid and, and civilian aid is it, Great, and we're appreciative. But at the same point, we could end this war in one to two months if we were wow. able to get everything on the wish list now. And so sometimes it feels like we're fighting as an insurgent army, even though we're fighting with the best weapons in the world. The country. From our US. Yeah. yeah, we're defending it. And we're making do with in ways that NATO standard troops could never imagine. And there's a great point that's in a congressional research paper where it was talking about amphibious vehicles for the United States Marine Corps. The United States has learned so much about Russian weaknesses that we've been able to, in the United States, modify some of our thinking based on what the Ukrainian armed forces have been able to carry out here. What we're doing here with US tax dollars is advancing US knowledge in the areas of defense and warfare by decades versus what they would be learning in simulations. And so what I could tell the US taxpayers is your support is not going to waste. And if you could just stay with us and tell your Congress people to get us the weapons we need, all of them right now, we will end this war and destroy Russia as a threat forever. 
That's a very powerful message and something that uh, our lawmakers uh, need to hear. I will say uh, I 100% believe that any investment to support Ukrainian defense is, has a better ROI than anything else that we could be doing. Uh, if, if you imagine another world where Russia were to steamroll Ukraine, uh, think about the costs of that world, not just in human costs, which are the obvious ones, um, but, but also of the message it sends to China and, uh, and others who might consider various aggressive uh, acts. Um, and then the reverse, that if you can remove Russia as a global threat, uh, that would be monumental, uh, historic. And uh, it's more a product of Ukrainian courage and sacrifice, obviously, than anything that uh, is being sent to the country by the American government. How would you describe the Ukrainian people from your nearly year there? I've never been around a group of people more certain in their beliefs and more willing to carry them out than the Ukrainian people. You talk about morale. Of course, the morale waxes and wanes because we're surrounded by death. But no one has lost the belief in victory. And this has been amazing. They talk about folks in the West being tired of, of the conflict. People are tired here, but they are still fully energized and fully focused on winning. And so I become inspired. It doesn't even have to be at the front lines. I could be in the middle of the country and I see somebody living in darkness and become inspired by them, knowing that they are chopping firewood when they were living with electricity two weeks ago, chopping firewood to stay warm and not complaining. They're going forward ready and willing to sacrifice in whatever way, not just militarily, in order to find victory and liberate their country. And that's, I think, one of the greatest follies that people are making is trying to compare this to any other foreign intervention by the United States uh, in the last 80 years, because ultimately this is an ally who has been invaded on their territory has had a what was known at one time as the second greatest army in the world. We now know the Russian army is, is really worthless and useless, uh, except to carry out terrorism. And so this conflict, this war, this battle, in no way can be judged by anything that's happened since World War II. And the Ukrainian people are fighting it as if it was a world war, because you have Iranian drones coming in at them. You have North Korean armaments coming in at them. You have Belarus and Russia launching attacks at us or Russia launching attacks from Belarusian territory at us. And so ultimately you have these different countries that are all coming at Ukraine and it's the Ukrainian people that are standing strong against this tyranny and against these tyrants. You are an American uh, risking your life in Ukraine. Uh, I admire you a great deal, as I'm sure anyone listening to this does. Um, are there people from around the world who are showing up in Ukraine? You just described kind of the uh, assemblage of forces against uh, Ukraine. Um, ha has there been a similar rally on the other side? Absolutely. There's a core group of, and, and for security reasons, I can't say the number, there's a core group of fighters who have come over willing to sign contracts, not as mercenaries. We don't have mercenaries here. 
people who are signing contracts directly with the Ukrainian armed forces, fighting on behalf of Ukraine, taking this oath to defend Ukraine, not giving up their belief in their nation. I'm very proud to be from the United States, and the United States is my, my home. But we are choosing to sign up and, and, and pledge our honor and our courage to Ukraine in order to fight back against this worldwide tyranny. And so ultimately, you have it in the military. And then you have this tremendous, tremendous outpouring of people who have come over as civilian volunteers from places such as Canada, the Baltic countries. You have uh, great people coming from the United States, from Australia. And so the civilian volunteer network, be it through logistics, be it through supplies, or even through hands-on medical work, is really something that is humbling to know how these people are risking their lives uh, for this uh, fight for freedom. Now, I, I regard Zelensky as a uh, symbol, uh, an example of courage at the highest levels. I mean, clearly uh, his life has been in jeopardy from uh, the beginning. Uh, I, I've been surprised by something of what I, I think is a disinformation or misinformation campaign in the U.S., where there is some conservatives that seem to be painting this conflict in a particular light. Saying conservatives, I mean, I think most conservatives are, are very much aligned that uh, Ukraine's defense is vital. Um, but uh, I, it, it, it seems to me that, that there is like a Russian campaign to try and seed some kind of counter-narrative. Uh, and I, I know you are plugged in in terms of uh, the Ukrainian military and its communications. Is there a sense that there's a Russian effort to sow... Uh, discontent uh, among American supporters of Ukraine? Absolutely. And, and we have factual proof of this, Andrea. And it didn't just start on February 24th. It didn't just start eight years ago. It started more than two decades ago when the Russians really gave up this idea that Ukraine was a free nation and truly just a vassal state that belonged to them. And so they were coming in trying to buy media companies, trying to push out this free media. And then you can look uh, back to 2014, which is when some of the first narratives, and I won't repeat them on air, but the first narratives started to pop up in Google Trends in order to create this false notion of what Ukraine is or was. And then it happened again on February 24th. And what the Russians do is they seed it because they, they're very good at this part of warfare. They go ahead and they seed it somewhere. They'll, they'll put it into an alternative media source. And then two, three, four months later, they'll pop it up from an official standpoint and say, look, the media was already reporting on this uh, a few months ago. So we know what they do. We know how they do it. The key point is being able to amplify this message back to the world, this free thinking world that's not being pulled in and, and sucked in by the propaganda of the Russian terrorists and be able to get them to understand, hey, these talking points are not just uh, funny, but they're malicious and they're an attempt to influence not just the war in Ukraine, but the overall global narrative of what freedom and democracy is. I published something not too long ago regarding the 
Russian interference in the elections. And without rehashing everything to do with the, the Mueller report, it's very clear that the Russians were behind this. And the head of the Wagner Group, Progrosian, who was indicted by the FBI in 2020 for election interference, went ahead and admitted in November of 2022 that he did, in fact, manipulate U.S. elections. And he's looking back on it now with uh, no, no concern. He's never going to be arrested. Hopefully, what we'll do at ZSU, at the Armed Forces of Ukraine, is we'll kill him. And if Progrosian's listening to this, you're a dead man. The Wagner Group are dead people. We are going to eradicate the scourge of these mercenaries coming out of Russia. But getting back to the standpoint of disinformation, he admitted in November of 2022 what the U.S. accused him of since 2014, which is meddling in the elections. Yeah, they, they are very, very uh, good at these uh, disinformation campaigns, and uh, they, they're long term about it. Um, I, but I, I have been surprised at uh, how uh, persistent these efforts have been. I instinctively ha have been the whole time that uh, we have to back Ukraine. Uh, it, this is as close to a uh, like a malevolent dictator invading uh, a neighbor and, and having their their uh, armed forces uh, act as a terrorist force. Um, o over months, and I'd imagine they thought that Ukraine would capitulate quite quickly, and, and now uh, Ukrainians have dug in, um, uh, and it's it's really heroic. One of the things that you put out recently made me incredibly sad, um, which was uh, a report that it's going to take decades to clear Ukraine of uh, ordinances and landmines. Uh, because the Russians have populated the countryside with, with them. Uh, that, that's a kind of real-life thing that uh, makes you realize just how long-term the damage is going to be. There's tens of thousands of acres of land that is no longer arable, no longer uh, used for growing food. And Ukraine has been considered for generations as the breadbasket of Europe. And so every time I would see on the news about this embargo or, or not being able to ship grain out, while that in itself is an immediate concern, the bigger concern is what happens during next sowing season when we're not even able to go ahead and, and plant these crops. In Kherson, which is one of the reasons I came down, was to see some of these armaments left behind by the Russians as they ran away. And in addition to the video you saw, we found live grenades, there's landmines, there's tripwires, et cetera. The Russians tried to terrorize even on their way out when they made this, uh, made this escape from Kherson across the river from where we are. And people die. There's a volunteer who died in September, drove over a landmine. People die all the time. It's not reported. And this is... Yesterday, when we lost in, in, in May, all of the people who died in yesterday's helicopter crash, especially the children in the kindergarten, uh, may they rest in peace and may they have um, peace in their hearts and souls for their family. When it was said that it was the Russians, it's because it was the Russians. There was a blackout in the city. The aviation lights were not working and it was foggy on the top of the buildings. Russian terrorism led to the uh, helicopter crash. 
Russian terrorism leads to these deaths at the, uh, in the fields when farmers drive over them with tractors, which happens. And yet, because we live in this 24-hour news cycle, as you well know, a one-off of somebody driving over a landmine doesn't capture the attention the way it would anywhere else in the world if we were not fighting in, uh, a, basically, I'll call it what could be um, on the verge of being a world war. And so ultimately, that's what we were trying to get some of the messaging out about. And there's others who, who take far greater efforts in, in taking care of this. There's an American volunteer, Ryan Hendrickson, who comes over from Florida. He's does landmine removal, a true hero. There's the Ukrainian sappers who, that's their whole job is to remove these unexploded ordinances. For me, I was shown it and I'm used to it in Kharkiv where we have so much land. And because it was on the border area, I would work as close as 500 to 700 meters from the Russian border for several months in Kharkiv. I probably spent more time on the Russian border than any other foreigner since this full-scale invasion. And going up to the Russian border, there's landmine warning signs everywhere because the Russians on their way out, again, when they retreated, because they had been in Kharkiv, the Kharkiv region, when they retreated, they destroyed the crops and the land. And it's something that stays heavy on all of our hearts and minds and, and something that, as Ryan jumped into the thread yesterday that you're referring to, we could be looking at uh, five decades before it ever gets cleared out. Yeah, well, Ryan uh, is another hero. It's true. I mean, you make me feel better about being an American. Uh, Ryan does uh, as well. I feel like the least America can do is uh, support people like you and the Ukrainian people who are laying their lives on the line every single day uh, in pursuit of just human freedom uh, and resistance to tyranny. So you came back to D.C. to talk to members of Congress. Uh, how did that go? It went extremely well. I think uh, when I arrived, because the Ministry of Defense wanted my itinerary, I think I had six meetings set up, uh, all of them very important enough for me to fly over. By the time I had left, by the time I had met up with you in New York City, I had met with over 20 different legislative offices, uh, several different committees, as well as uh, speaking at some think tanks. And after meeting with you for some coffee in, in New York, I ended up going back to DC for more meetings because uh, the message had resonated uh, so greatly on a bipartisan level with the lawmakers in in Washington. And I can say on behalf of the armed forces of Ukraine and, and Ukrainians everywhere, we are so grateful for the support from a bipartisan uh, sense in the United States Congress. And we understand just how important the U.S. legislators are to this fight for victory. Yeah, th this needs to be nonpartisan or bipartisan. Uh, I think traditionally uh, it would have been, but your heading to, to D.C., I'm sure, is very, very compelling and powerful. I mean, as an American who's on the front uh, with such a direct authoritative perspective, uh, and the same way that Zelensky has this moral authority, um, you do too, uh, and Ryan, and anyone who's heading to a war zone, uh, especially in your case, because you don't need to be there. I've become as close to apolitical 
as one can be. And you have to when you're in a situation like this. I pay attention now, obviously, to the bigger issues of what we're facing on a global scale. But a lot of what's happening in the United States, while still very important to the people going through it, I now realize whether it's an issue on the right or the left, I can't necessarily involve myself in commentary, you know, and comment on it unless it's extremely egregious because we can't take our focus off of this, this fight that we're in, this war against uh, Russian uh, aggression. And so when I got to DC, I spoke with some very conservative folks and I spoke with some very liberal folks and it was okay because all of us were focused on how we can beat Russia. And that was such an encouraging sign for me that people could put aside maybe preconceived notions of who I was, but more importantly, people could put aside any sort of partisan bickering for truly this greater good. And after victory, what I hope the United States Congress takes out of this is that they can come and find uh, solutions and, and find a way to bring prosperity to the United States and a greater prosperity to the United States and re-establish themselves as this moral authority in global uh, events and in global affairs because of what they've managed to succeed with the Ukrainian people here. Well, it, it takes leadership like yours to demonstrate how trivial uh, the back and forth issues are in the context of a life or death struggle for democracy, uh, humanity, civilization. Um, so let's um, let's say everything goes as well as it can, where the the American people uh, and anyone who's watching this, please do express your support for the people of Ukraine. They're still fighting and dying, uh, and reach out to your lawmakers and express the the fact that uh, you you think it's vital that. Russia's defeated and ejected. Let's say that you were to get the resources you need. Um, Russia essentially it, uh, retreats or capitulates, and I'm sure they try and put a positive face on it um, for, for their own people and their own sake, but, uh, but, but they're defeated. Uh, do you think that there should be an international effort to invest in the, uh, the rebuilding of Ukraine? Because I'm sure you see the devastation of war around you all the time. Absolutely. And one of the things uh, in areas of rebuilding that I hope people understand after this is the technical ingenuity of the Ukrainian people is second to none. And when we have people like yourself, uh, entrepreneurs who understand how to rebuild, that's who we need to rely on as well as international organizations. I'll sound like the Chamber of Commerce here, but Ukraine's going to be open for business, and it's not just an agrarian society. It's not just a society of these brave warriors. It's a society of some of the most highly educated, forward-looking, internationally focused people, even before the full-scale invasion. And the opportunity that's going to take place here for any entrepreneurs, as well as nations that want to solidify their alliances and move forward in a way that uh, creates, as I said earlier with the United States, creates prosperity, there's no better country than Ukraine. This is being able to take a blank slate to whatever the dreams are that people could imagine for an economy as we head towards 2050 that can take place here. 
And it's not just politicians that we want coming over to Ukraine. We want business leaders. We want entrepreneurs to come over and see for themselves the opportunities. Folks can come to Lviv. Folks can come to Kyiv. And it's safe. Uh, and then as the different cities open up, as we liberate places like Kherson, where I am right now, or Kharkiv, which has been liberated now for a few months, uh, then you can see different opportunities open up there. The ports are, are here. We have in, incredible natural resources, but most importantly, we have people power and highly educated uh, workforce here. Well, it sounds like after uh, the Warrens, the Chamber of Commerce might make you an offer. <laughs> Uh, and, you know, ho- hopefully for all of our sakes, we, we get there. So that there are a lot of people who want to support the efforts in Ukraine. Um, but there's also a, a lot of mistrust and confusion out there. If someone does want to support uh, the people on the ground, um, how can they, they do so? Is there an organization, uh, a link that you promote? Absolutely. But before I get to that point... I would like to just make one uh, statement to rebut anyone who says there's waste or other words, which uh, I won't repeat here on the air, when it comes to aid to Ukraine. There's more than 60 different oversight projects going on just from the executive branch of government right now, between the State Department, or the U.S. executive branch, between the State Department, the Pentagon, and USAID, there's 63 different committees that are looking into oversight of aid to Ukraine. And so people can rest assured that when their money is sent to Ukraine, it's being used. It's not being siphoned off. It's being used in this battle for liberty. Because if not, the Ukrainians become enslaved by a Russian dictator. I would uh, suggest uh, Liberty Ukraine, which is a group made up of what I call resistance fighters in Austin, Texas, and New Jersey. They're all Ukrainian nationals who had immigrated and found great success in the United States and now give almost all of their time back to their homeland. And so this group, Liberty Ukraine, uh, I, I can send you the link, but that's who I would suggest. They've sent over um, more than 30,000 pounds of supplies to both the military and civilian populace, and it ships right out of uh, New Jersey. Well, that, that sounds ideal. Uh, and I, I love the idea of uh, the Ukrainian diaspora trying to uh, help the homeland. I think I speak for everyone when I say, first and foremost, stay safe, Sarah. Uh, we, you know, mm-hmm. you're, we, we, we certainly uh, need you to come back home and, and uh, be able to continue to share your story. Uh, I dare say that there is going to be a movie about you after all this is said and done. We should uh, think about who's going to play you. Um, oh uh, but you, you are in, in the uh, immediate present. Um, you are an author. Um, you, you're putting out videos as to what's happening in Ukraine. How can people uh, follow you and support you personally? If you go to Twitter or Instagram, Sarah Ashton, Sarah with an H, S-A-R-A-H, Ashton LV, stands for Las Vegas, on Twitter and Instagram. And I also have a Substack that uh, I sometimes put interesting nuggets on, and that's Sarah Ashton Cirillo on Substack. And speaking of Las Vegas, and I don't want to bring it back to domestic policy, except voting is an internationally important, voting rights internationally important uh, topic. Congratulations to the Forward Party in Las Vegas for passing 
um, the first step in getting ranked choice voting and uh, top five voting uh, into the Nevada Constitution. It doesn't matter what party you're involved in. It's not a partisan issue, just like war isn't. And another reason we're fighting this war is so people can make free choices, whether it's President Zelensky or, or anyone else, on who's going to represent them. And we want the same thing everywhere in the world. Yeah, some of your friends in Nevada were integral to that campaign. And it really was the people of Nevada saying, we'd like to determine our own future, please. Uh, so it, it was... Uh, invigorating and inspiring to be a part of that. We have to do it again in 2024, most people know, because of the way the Nevada Constitution. Um, so uh, who knows, Sarah, you might be there there with us. Uh, you'll, you'll be a returning hero, uh, and then people will attend massive rallies in your honor, and then you will say, yeah, vote, vote yes on question uh, whatever the heck it's going to be on, on this ballot oh. in 2024. I have a vision. It's going to come to pass. You'll be there, I'll be there, and there will be uh, a crowd of, uh, of raucous, adoring uh, Nevadans. I'll say this, and, and I know we have to wrap it up in a moment. I'm just a soldier who's following orders and, and trying to fight for freedom. And whether it was you as a mayor or as our commander in chief or Governor Whitman, wherever you guys say we need to, to pop up to be able to push, uh, pun intended, forward with, with liberty on the United States, I think there's many of us ready to go and fight for it. Well, you're leading by example in the most powerful way you can, Sarah. Really, please, please, please stay safe. And anyone who wants to follow and support Sarah's work, follow her on social media, Substack. She writes at Resolute Square. But yeah, let's bring her home. And the best way to do that is to end this war. Thank you so much for the time, Andrew. Have a wonderful afternoon. So great to see you, my friend. Thank you. Thank you.